Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. The dream of home ownership has never been further out of reach for Gen Xers or millennials. So this may come as a surprise. Boston may be the city for you. Turns out Boston's first-time homebuyers' grants and creative financing options are among the best in the country. And if you are willing to be patient and work your way through a morass of paperwork, you can save tens of thousands of dollars, even get your condo fees reduced. One of my guests today did just that. We are talking all things local real estate today, and we've got, I hope, a positive spin. Joined here in the studio by Michael Nichols. He's an attorney and founder of Hubwise Realty. Tricia McCarthy, she's the president of the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. And Tom Gleason of Mass Housing. Welcome to all of you. Welcome. All right. So here, you know, by all accounts, it's it's really one of the best times to buy a home in Massachusetts. Interest rates are at historic lows. Home prices in Boston have dropped to about 2001 levels. Despite this, the 25 to 34 year old group has has actually dropped in in, in housing purchases. It's down 20 percent between 05 and, and 2010. Anybody want to guess why? Is it nervousness? Is it incomes aren't keeping up? The economy and people aren't uncertain about their jobs? What is it? I think it's just that, Emily. I think people are afraid of the stories they've heard over the last five or six years and are staying on the on the sidelines when it's really a perfect time to get off the sidelines and buy a home. Interest rates are as low as they've ever been. Uh, prices, while down for so many years, are kind of bumping along the bottom and starting to come back. So I think it's a perfect opportunity to jump back into the market for people who are looking to buy their first home. So it's safer to rent in a way. It's safer not to rent. People don't want to get underwater where you owe more on your home than than it's worth. You know, you take out a mortgage that's some gigantic mortgage and then you realize, wait a second, the house isn't even worth that much. So people are worried about that. Yeah, I think they are worried about it. But we've all heard those stories about people who bought and flipped a home six months later and made $500,000. Right. And, and those are the urban legends. Those, that was me back in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, want to buy a, if you want to buy a home and it's shelter for you and your family. Yeah. You have to think of it as that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, 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 you know, it's not just an investment. It's some place to live. Um, so, Mike, you actually have an interesting story. You were the one who figured out as a first-time home buyer how to, you know, work the system to your advantage. Sure. So tell your story. Sure. Yeah, I moved uh, up here from Connecticut about uh, four years ago. And after a few years, you know, you get really tired of paying rent to landlords and not seeing it anymore. And I was you living, were living, in the back, ba- yeah. living in the back bay, paying over 1300 a month, you know, not seeing any of it back. And, and that's before... Uh, you know, before all the other stuff, the utilities and things. And so I said, there's, there's got to be a better way. And in finding out about the first-time homebuyer program in Boston, what's called the Inclusionary Development Program, uh, I discovered that sort of, you know, affordable um, isn't what you've always thought affordable to mean. And in many cases, it could mean for anyone earning under $82,000 a year, um, you know, there are opportunities out there to live in great places in great locations around the city um, for something that, that somebody like me, a young professional who is working in the public sector and not making a lot of money, uh, could afford. Well, tell me, tell me how it worked. Tell me your personal story. Sure. So, so as it works is that the, the mayor uh, – How did you find out about it? I mean people don't know anything. That's my mantra you know, I, in life. Nobody knows anything. They it's know true. Anything. It's so true. I wish I remember exactly how I found out about it. Um, you know, but it was something where I think I'd, I had seen a listing as I had started to look at just you know, regular houses and, and, and condos and saw a listing that said you know, income limits. And I said, well, all right. Well, what does that mean? And started digging into it a little further. Uh, and and the, what the city does now is in all new developments and, and redevelopments, they set aside 13% of the units um, for people with what I, I tend to call middle income, middle to low incomes in the sense of I don't, I don't think anybody would say 82000 is necessarily a low income. Uh, but with sort of these low to middle incomes uh, to, you know, income qualified to take a home buyer course to apply to, uh, to live in the unit. Uh, and if it's a new unit, they do a lottery. And if it's a resale unit, one that someone's previously owned, then it's on a first-come, first-served basis. And so long as you can uh, afford it based on what your your income is at that time and what you know, sort of your debt and your asset uh, you know, rates are, uh, then there's a great place waiting for you. And I missed out on a lottery or two because it's, it's sort of tough. It's very yeah, competitive. Yeah, you got to stay on top of the right. game. Absolutely. Yeah. And so after that, I said, boy, I'm going to go for a resale. I'm going to try and be one of the first people to find out about a new unit. And I found an absolutely great place in the Fenway, two, two, three minutes from Fenway Park and not so far from the studios here today. Right. So nice, easy commute. Well, Trish, as a, as a realtor, do you tell people about this? And I was also curious about Mike's story about getting reduced condo fees. I mean, I've never heard of such a thing. Yep, absolutely. I, and I've done 
quite a few of these type of programs I've done, lottery, I've done mass housing. And it's interesting, you're at, Mike's absolutely right. Uh, in many cases, it's people that maybe couldn't take that first step. Maybe they didn't have enough equity. Maybe they thought their income was too low. Um, up in the North Shore, which is where I'm from, uh, we've we've got the word out through uh, multiple areas. Sometimes it's in planning board and zoning board meetings. Sometimes it's our chamber of commerce that has flyers about the first time buyer programs. And in some cases, it's about mass housing. So people have they can look at it and and see if their income if they kind of qualify for that or does it make more sense to do a mass housing. So we are seeing a lot of that. First time buyers are looking for that. How does the uh, the condo fee reduction work? Because if you own something, you you are responsible to the condo association. How in the world do you qualify to get a, a condo fee reduced? Sure. It's done at the very beginning. So they put into sort of the master deed for the condominium complex what percentage of the total rate will be assigned to each unit. And so yeah. they, they determine at the very beginning that these units will be, you know, proportionally less sort of similar to the, the initial purchase price. So uh, at current, a brand new unit in this program, the maximum – uh, one bedroom purchase price at the beginning right now is one sixty seven, and so if it's about one hundred sixty seven thousand dollars for a unit and it's three hundred thousand dollars for the other units, then based on sort of that differential value, they also have the condo fees be that at that same even ratio. If, even if the condo is the same size, even, see, I'd object. It's the same size. If I was in that building, I'd say, wait a second, I'm paying twice as much for the, exa- the the identical space. And, it, and it's a fair argument. I think <laughs> I think it's it's sort of you're thinking, you know, you it's think one thing more... for the state to give you a break. It's one thing for the city to give you a break, but as a as a as a co-owner of the building, you know, I'd say, "Wait a minute." Sure. I think <laughs> I think it's something where you you probably look at it and you say, you know, the the benefits of, you know, a mixed-use building of having an affordable yeah. population in the building, it's usually only two or three units out of, you know, 40 or 50. And so it's such a small margin that it probably wouldn't mean much to those who can afford it, but it means a world to the people who can. And if I could, Emily, to, to piggyback on what Mike is saying, it also depends on the complex because like some of the ones that I've worked with um, and they were involved in the lottery, they actually paid the same condo fee. Okay. Um, it remained uh, available for a lottery and then when it became a resale, we first had to offer it to a, the, with the same criteria. But if no one then qualified, we could put it out in the market. Well, I mean, do, do, do you go around? Is there a way to encourage people? I mean, how do you even find people who are rent? I mean, Boston is just full of people, just chock full of people who are renting. Young people, you got all these kids pouring out of colleges and universities right into the city, you know, looking for apartments. Do you reach out to them? How, how do you go about that, Tom? Well, you do everything that you can. Uh, sometimes you're on uh, radio shows uh, <laughs> talking about what's going on in housing uh, in the city of Boston through as much outreach as you can. Uh, social media has been a great way that we found uh, that we're reaching out to the younger demographics, the people who are ready to buy a home and buy their first home, either through Facebook or Twitter or however you get uh, the word out, you market as aggressively as you can. And I think as these stories build, as as stories like Michael's compounds, people start getting saying, yeah, I, th- I think I can buy. I actually am ready to buy. Uh, I can afford something like that, and I'm not going to worry about uh, being a mi- becoming a millionaire just by buying my first condo. I need a place to live. I'd rather put it into a mortgage than pay the landlord the same amount in rent. So let's go for it. Tell me how the formulas work, Michael. Because um, do you get the same? Do you, do, you, do you have a low interest rate? Do you, how, how much did you have to put down? If you don't mind telling me, how much did you have to put down? Um, because a lot of at this stage of the market, a lot of um, you know sellers are asking for twenty percent. I mean, that's kind of the isn't that about the going rate, Trish? Ten percent, twenty percent? No, actually, mm-hmm. most of the people are trying three and a half percent to five percent. It's, down, it, it, yeah, down, yeah. And it, again, it depends those on were the, the old program. Days. Yeah. No, and, I mean, but but if in the regular housing market, isn't it isn't it sort of standard to do? Uh, I've had a few that have been ten to twenty percent down, mm-hmm. but I would say eighty percent. Um, at least within the last year, have looked for a three and a half percent program. Wow. Yep. That's, so, how did it work with you? Yeah. So uh, traditionally, it is the twenty percent yeah. rate, and so it, it's something I think as programs have have cropped up. It's it's as, as Trisha mm. says, has 
changed. But for this program, it's it's three percent of which only one and a half percent has to come out of pocket, which is an incredibly low amount. I mean, that's mm. that's why I plead, you know, sort of through you know the the Hubwise Realty company that I put together for sort of to help people in my same position. And where does the rest of it come from? So you the come rest, up with one and a half percent, right? You come up with one and a half percent, and the other one and a half percent can come from either gift, so perhaps like family, mom and dad, <laughs> the bank of mom and dad, yeah. or it could come from uh, city or state programs such as. Boston has what's called the cash to close program, which they would provide you up to 3% of the purchase price to go towards not only down payment costs, but also closing costs. And so Why? Sort of the, Why do they give it to you? I think it's to incentivize homeownership. I think they know that the people who are living in a city such as Boston, who set down the roots, who own the homes, who are owner-occupied, it's the same reason why they offer sort of the, the property tax abatement in Boston, which is equivalent of fifteen or $1,600 a year. Those are the people that you know will build your community, that will take ownership over the community, and will really uh, make Boston day-to-day life better. I think history has shown us in the market that it's not the low down payment that's causing a problem. It was when uh, lenders and everybody simply threw common sense underwriting out of the window. Mm. Uh, that's when we got all the foreclosures and the delinquencies. The 80-20 and, and, loans and all that. Yes, 80-20, 90-10, piggyback, make up. You know, it was a name du jour mm. of we've got a program that no one else has, and it was the same program that everyone has. It was a bad program. But common sense has returned to to the market now. Uh, remember John Hausman in the commercials? He said, we did things the old-fashioned way. <laughs> That's what lenders are doing now. They're underwriting all the loans that come in. And we see now what we saw 10 years ago, that low down payments are not an indicator of default or a bad loan if you underwrite it properly. And you know, people like Michael will prove that out. But that was, that was kind of what created the housing burst, that people were they were getting these low, no down payments, 90-10 or what, 20-80, whatever it was, and there was no down payment, and, and they couldn't make either one of the loans. Well, I think, Emily, more importantly the, than the no down payment was the problems that the no document loan caused. Right. And people, what that's does that mean? When I say people throw common sense out of the, out of the window, when you make out a, a mortgage application, um, lenders were not verifying where you worked, what your income was, what money you had in the mm. bank. They weren't requiring any documentation at all. Uh, they don't do that anymore. And yeah. that's why low down payment mortgages, if you do it the right way, make all the sense in the world because that's how people are going to come into the first-time homebuyer market. People aren't able to save in a place like Boston where you might make you might pay thirteen, fifteen, two thousand dollars a month in rent. You can't save enough money for a down payment. So you have to have the low down payment program working. Mm-hmm. What does mass housing do? How do you? Well, um, we call ourselves the state's affordable housing bank. We do two things principally. We do uh, construction lending for affordable rental housing, and then we do mortgage financing for first time home buyers mm-hmm. all across the all across the Commonwealth. Now, do you set them up with lenders, or do you use the go between? We have a network of about 150 lenders that uh, anybody who's looking for a home uh, can loan, can find a place. We do it from one corner of the state to another, from. Uh, Williamstown to Provincetown, and literally every place in between. You can pick the lender you want to go to. If they're mass housing qualified, you come through them and you can get a mass housing loan. Talking all things real estate here today, we've got good news because my guests here in the studio are saying now is a great time to buy, and there's some great deals to be had through the city of Boston and its uh, first-time home buyer programs. I'm joined here in the studio by Tom Gleason from Mass Housing, Trish McCarthy, who's the president of the Mass Association of Realtors, and Mike Nichols, who's attorney and founder of Hubwise Realty. So, Mike, did you have this Hubwise before or after you bought a condo? Oh, it was certainly after. It was certainly, <laughs> you know, after all the paperwork and all everything, I said, boy, it's just such a great program, and why not help people in the same position? And, and you know, as as people should know, I mean, as a buyer's agent, as someone who primarily works with buyers, you know that you know that, that you know you can help your friends. You can help your friends of friends. They don't have to pay you up front. This is something where you can help people at no additional cost to what they would pay if they did it themselves. To to work through the program with them, to help them through the lotteries, or to help them fill out the yeah. the BRA applications. It's it's paperwork intensive. I can imagine. So you're actually the guy to go to. If I if I I'm just totally overwhelmed by all the paperwork that you went through. So, so for some kind of a fee, 
you'll work them walk them through the process. Right. So well, I would be compensated out of the seller's commission, which is yeah. natural for what what a buyer's agent in or out of this program would do. Uh, but yeah, I'm someone who can help. You know, I mean, Boston has the highest rate of 20 to 34 year olds in the country. Any any big city in the country, the highest rate, and 70 percent of them have jobs. So that 70 percent has to be looking at paying money to a landlord each year as as sort of a detriment, any reason to possibly move to the suburbs or move to another major city that could be you know less expensive. And I think I'm there to try and find these listings, find them right as they're coming online. Uh, right as they're coming as a resale or as the lotteries are approaching and help people understand that they can actually afford this program like I did. So what happens, Mike, when all of a sudden, you know, you strike gold, you hit oil, and suddenly your income and your assets go up by leaps and bounds? Does the condo association then come knocking on your door and say, you know, we want you to pay a full freight? Do they take the house away from you? Do you have to then refinance? What happens? None of the above. They, it is you have to income qualify on the day that you purchase the unit. And the so next day you can be rich. You could. I, I hope that for everyone. It hasn't happened to me yet in these two years, but uh, it is something that could happen. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, we're talking all things real estate here on the Emily Rooney Show. We're going to take your phone calls in the next segment at eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Any question you have about first time home buying, home ownership? I've got my guests right here in the studio to answer your questions. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Father wears his Sunday best. Mother's tired, she needs a rest. The kids are playing up downstairs. Sister's sighing in her sleep. Brothers got a date to keep you can't hang around We love our contributors. That means you. And Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And Old Sturbridge Village celebrating Independence Day, a chance to celebrate America's birthday with music, magic, and a fireworks display at dusk on July 3rd, and a full day of family fun on the 4th. Details and tickets at osv.org. And members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource, available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell. In Silicon Valley, it's the F word that entrepreneurs say in polite company all the time. I think failure in the culture means you just haven't gotten your success yet. I would say failure is mandatory. I almost don't even trust an entrepreneur who hasn't failed before. Failure is as pervasive as weather. The relationship between failure and success in the world of high tech. That's later on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon at 4, here on 89.7 WGBH. Support WGBH right now and you'll automatically be entered to win a trip to England. Make an online gift and you and a guest could be going to visit High Clear Castle, referred to on Masterpiece simply as Downton Abbey. Prize includes round-trip airfare from Lufthansa, four-night stay at the Vineyard at Stockcross, and a private tour of High Clear Castle led by the lady of the house, Fiona, Countess of Carnarvon. For a chance to win, visit WGBH.org. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show, the dream of home ownership. You think it's out of your reach. This may come as a surprise. Boston may be the city for you. I'm joined here in the studio by Mike Nichols, an attorney and founder of Hubwise Realty, Trish McCarthy, president of the Mass Association of Realtors, Tom Gleason of Mass Housing. We're taking your phone calls this segment at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Anybody has a question about getting into the housing market, how to break through the morass of all that papership, what are the breaks for people buying for the first time, and do they last forever? We were just talking to Mike, who says they actually do. Give us a call, 877-301-8970, and I've got Joshua from Gardner, Massachusetts. Go ahead, Josh. Hi there. I was just wondering how we could parlay 
uh, some sort of VA loan into uh, some of these other uh, housing programs that are available. Good question. Tom, anybody know how that works? Trish? VA loans, actually, they they have some great uh, programs out there. If you talk to a local lender, um, they can help you with... um, the information that is required, your um, exe- your certificate of eligibility, of course, you have to have that up front. And some of the loans, and Tom may be able to expand on it, but most of the VA loans are zero down. Um, now they allow closing costs to be paid by the seller, which in the past that was never allowed. So they certainly have some great VA programs out there. Hmm. Josh, I'd also... Um tell you a program that we started a few years ago called the Home for the Brave program. We were finding that people with uh, that were coming out of the military were having a hard time qualifying for a mortgage because, if you can believe this, they couldn't prove that they had a stable monthly income. Uh, and, and we thought that was wrong. So uh, what we did was we worked with about uh, 50 banks all across the state to create the Home for the Brave program. Um, where uh, those banks uh, will make the mortgages and we'll buy them from the banks uh, who are uh, going to make mortgage commitments to uh, veterans coming out of the service. All right, Josh, thanks for the call. Uh, First-time home buyers need apply. Give us a call here at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. We were talking all things about buying your first home here in the Bay State and maybe Boston in particular, which has got a couple of great programs to help people with creative financing and even reducing your condo fees. And we've got somebody here in the studio who can walk you right through that process. Mike Nichols is attorney and founder of Hubwise Realty. Let's see. Let's go to Maureen from Hingham. Hi. 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 Uh, my question is this, and I, I'm going to sound very curmudgeonly, and I also have two kids in their 20s. They'll probably kill me for asking this, but um, about the condo, that condo that the example, I think, was $187,000, and then the real price was, say, $330,000. When that condo is, is sold by that buyer, if, if it's not sold to somebody else in his situation, a new buyer, and, in fact, it goes on the market for the three thirty, does he pocket then the whole Good question. Uh, gain? Yeah, Maureen, it's a Mike, great question. Mike, that's your que- that's your. <laughs> so, so Maureen's basically asking if my place goes up that much in the next yeah. couple of years, could I sell it? No, there there are actually resale limits. So you are you are limited to sell the unit. First, you're limited to only sell it back to someone in the program. So you can only sell the unit to someone who also income qualifies for the program. Uh, second, you are limited by how much you can resell it for for a limit of up to five percent more per year than you paid for it. So if you buy a unit for two hundred thousand dollars, you can only sell it after a year for two ten. After two years, for a little over two twenty, so you are limited to a maximum resale value. In addition to that, you can the only other thing you could add is any capital improvements you've made. Uh, if the the unit starts going up in price to the point where it may price out someone at sort of the the income limit level, the lowest level is fifty two thousand a year, which is at the eighty percent of Boston's area and media income. Then the BRA reserves the right to elevate which income level can can choose to purchase it. Someone at fifty two thousand, someone at sixty four, someone at eighty two. Um, but you cannot make a windfall on the program. So does that answer your question? What is your it concern? Does. Thank you. I feel I feel a little better. <laughs> I know I know how you feel, Maureen. You know, you and I the first the first time we bought our homes, we paid full price, right? Absolutely. <laughs> didn't, didn't matter how broke we were. I can remember yeah, I mean, that. The discount the discount on the condo fees, I mean, I guess you know, I'm going to try and just wrap my mind around that and figure yeah. out that that's okay. I know. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind about that one, too. As somebody <laughs> bought a condo about six years ago. And, you know, it feels like Oh, yeah. well, thanks all. <laughs> okay, thanks, Maureen. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's, that's interesting, though. So I guess you can, you can understand, Mike, and people are worried mm-hmm. about, you know, these young, young, and then suddenly they're entrepreneur. Look, you, you started a business off this whole thing. They think, wow, you know, these guys get going, and suddenly they've got the break, and everybody else is sitting around you know, struggling to pay their full freight. Sure, and and that's why I'm trying to make sure that everyone knows about the program. So I think it's something that everybody who's in a similar position uh, should know that this program out there exists and could help them. Okay, a caller just uh, called and left a message, and any one of you could jump in and uh, answer this because they just want to know, and it's sort of what I started asking you about in the very beginning, Mike, what, where can you get the information about these programs in other states like New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island? Where do you go to find out if... Other states, other communities, other cities offer breaks to first-time home buyers. I, I had the same question. How would you even know? Well, um, I think Trisha and I will probably come at it from different angles, mm-hmm. and we may end up at the same place. So uh, 
uh, I run what's called a housing finance agency in Massachusetts. We're, we're not that creative, so it's a Massachusetts housing finance agency. There's one of us in every state in the country. So if you're interested in uh, finding out what kind of special programs are available in Connecticut, there's a Connecticut housing finance agency. In New Hampshire, it's a New Hampshire housing finance agency. They have all of their programs online. It doesn't take uh, it doesn't take much to find them, uh, and and I think uh, contacting realtors who are more and more educated about every available program that's going on in their city is a great place to go. And that's exactly where I was going to go. Uh, first thing that they should do is contact a local realtor to the area that they are interested in, and then in addition to that. Um, most of the states, I can speak to the, the states surrounding us here in Massachusetts and including Massachusetts, if they go to the State Realtor Association site, there's oftentimes more information there, including links of where to go to look for various programs. But I think the, the key is to start with a realtor local to the area that you think you want to go to. But in all honesty, Trish, are, are realtors anxious to be helping out people in these programs? They don't get the same kind of they're not going to get the same percentages off the sales. I mean, you know, I think a lot of us have had a, a r- wide range of experiences with the uh, shark world of real estate. <laughs> oh, and, and actually, not not to be adversarial, but I'm going to disagree. Um, seriously, the realtors that are out there, if they find a local realtor, the bottom line is home ownership. And, you know, it starts with just one Inch by inch is a cinch, I guess I could say. Yard by yard is very hard. So if you start with a local realtor, and even if it's a small amount, what's going to happen is if you make that person happy, they're going to refer you other business. So it's not – it's about a lifelong relationship. It's not just about one one time. All right. We're taking your phone calls today on all things first-time home buyer about the grants and creative financing options that are available. If you have any questions, I've got the experts here in the studio to answer your questions. Give us a call at 877 877- Three zero one eighty nine seventy eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Why is it that young homeowners are so critical to a community? What is it that makes you know? Why do we care if if young people are buying homes or not? I think we care because the the young people are the folks who are who are setting down the roots, who are mm-hmm. starting the families, who are looking after the school systems. These are the people who are breathing life into the city. You know, at hours that sort of others might not be. Um, it, they're really the ones that contribute to that sense of a 24-7, um, you know, atmosphere in the city. In addition, they're the workforce. I mean, like I said, you know, the 66 percent um, of 20 to 34-year-olds are working in the city of Boston for the ones that live in the city. You know, 66 percent of them are working in the city and 70 percent of them are employed, you know, period. So these are the people who, who it's our young workforce. It's, it's allowing our companies to grow. And they're the ones who are looking after our schools and, and breathing life into our economy. In addition to that, and that's absolutely right, they are the roots of our community. They are the grassroots. What we're seeing is when some of these young people are moving in, all of a sudden they're part of the school board. They want to get on planning board. They want to be on the conservation commission. And they really do. They they are a breath of fresh air, but they're also the roots. You know, I think as we look at uh, the young people that are buying a home, we're we're looking at the definition of the first-time homebuyer market. If there is no first-time homebuyer market, there is no ability to trade up uh, and have uh, people sell and buy a home uh, that's of more value. So first-time homebuyers are critical to the market. The young people are critical to that because of everything that Mike mm-hmm. and Tricia have said. All right. We're taking your phone calls, 877-301-8970. We've got Jean on the phone from Lowell. What's your question, Jean? My question is I had a son who, who owned a first house. But a hospital came along and, built, and wanted to build up a complex for elderly there, and so he he acquiesced to to go with the community and and do that. Then he bought a second house and now and got caught up in the countrywide um, oh. mess there. Would he qualify as a first um, buyer since was was an asterisk because he would, did a good deed with the first house? I see what you mean. Uh, no, if Trish. he's thanks, Jean. And, and Tom, thanks, Gene, for that. And yes, I can completely understand what you're saying. Um, and Tom maybe can expand on it. But t- but typically, the requirements for a first time buyer is you are a first time buyer. Um, so he probably wouldn't qualify for that, but he would qualify for some of the other loan programs: the mass housing, the um, the uh, USDA loans. 
uh, many of those programs, right? Yes, right, there, there's a unique way uh, that you can actually get your first-time homebuyer status back, uh, and it's buried in the federal tax code. Uh, if you did own a home once but haven't owned a home as your principal residence for the last three years, you can actually be a first-time mm. home buyer. All right. Now. i got one more call I can take care of. I've got Shay from Salem. Go ahead, Shay. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Um, and I just tuned in. Um, I have never purchased a home before, but my husband has many, many years ago. Um, he just sold his home within the last two years. Would we qualify for a first-time Home buyers program because I never question. owned a home. Why can't she just own it by it herself? Good question, Shay. Well, Shay, if you can buy the home on your own income and your husband's your husband is not involved, then you can be a first time home buyer. If the two of you need to buy it together uh, and it's been uh, less than three years, then you cannot. She could borrow okay. money from you could borrow money from your husband and and buy it. No, wouldn't that be legal? <laughs> Well, I think that would be between you and your banker on how, on how that mortgage application gets filled out. Now, in addition to that, though, some of some of the programs, such as the city's, you know, cash assistance programs, the cash to close program, don't require first time home ownership. So, even if you may not be able to qualify to purchase a unit in one of these programs, some of the financing options that are out there for you would be as if you were a first time home buyer. So, people have good questions. So, I mean, it's like these things are. Oh, there's so much nuance and layers right. to this, but. What I'm hearing you say there is there's probably a lot of ways to to work the system, even even in Shay's case. Yes, absolutely. If you're a credible buyer in the marketplace today, you're going to find somebody who will finance your mortgage. Right. It's all about finding a buyer's agent that can help you through the process. Right. Anybody got a website we can throw out to give people? You've got hubwiserealty.com. Hubwiserealty.com, which will be also on your website. Okay. And we'll have that on our website. And... Marealtor.com. All right. And masshousing.com. All right. Thanks so much for joining us here today. That was great. Tom Gleason, Tricia McCarthy, and Mike Nichols, all things first-time homebuyers. All right, up next, we're going to continue our conversation. No, whoops, we're going to be talking about, uh, um, we're going to be talking with Larry Smith. He's the man who has collected and published a series of popular six-word memoirs. He's back with a new collection from writers famous and obscure about the single moment that changed their lives. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and Comcast Internet Essentials. Internet Essentials is available to help families in need. Families with students qualified for free school lunches may be eligible for Internet Essentials. You can learn more at internetessentials.com. And the Zyterian New Bedford. 20% of our audience comes from outside a 45-mile radius. Catherine Knowles, Executive Director. We're reaching demographically a broader audience and geographically. We now draw from Boston, Western Mass, the Cape, South Coast, and we know that's because of GBH. To learn more, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. On the next Cali Crossley show, innovation. The buzzword is taking over. Once reserved for the likes of Benjamin Franklin and Henry Ford, today it's up for grabs. Companies use it to describe products like toothpaste and soup. Businesses are putting the word innovation in job titles. By overusing innovation, are we fooling ourselves that improvements, revisions, and an entrepreneurial spirit are synonymous with life-changing inventions? Today at 1 on WGBH. Context beyond the headlines. Issues you want to know more about. Stories you'll want to share. News and depth. Online at WGBHnews.org. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. As the story goes, in the 1920s, Ernest Hemingway's colleagues bet him that he couldn't write a complete story in just six words. His response? For sale, baby shoes never worn. Their response? Well, they paid up. That now famous work of literature was an inspiration for Larry Smith, whose Smith magazine began collecting other people's six-word memoirs. The response was overwhelming, and it led to a popular series of books. Now Larry has expanded that idea, collecting a series of short stories from 125 writers and artists, famous and obscure. And the book is The Moment, 
wild, poignant, life-changing stories. And joining me now to talk about the new book is the man behind it, Larry Smith. Welcome. So nice to be here, Emily. It's great, Larry. I mean, you know, I was a big fan of your six-word memoirs, and I went right through this, combing through your index to find out who I knew and who I didn't know, because you've got one of our favorite guys in here, Steve Almond, who's he's, a regular on the show. He's wonderful. And he had a great little short story. So how did you... Uh, get going with this idea? How did you expand on the six word? Well, I kept hearing as we would do uh, book tours and just uh, talking to the community through the website, Smith Magazine, you know, I want, to, I want to tell you more. And I originally started Smith about six years ago as a place for personal storytelling. Six words was the one that really got it off the ground because it was easy and addictive. But I wanted to get back to the original idea that everyone has stories to tell in more than six words, famous and not famous. And they're, they're, they're very concise. So what's the word count of most of these stories? You know, we have a couple of six-worders in there, of course. How could <laughs> we not? Um, and up to about 1,500 words. Jennifer Egan, the writer, uh, yeah. wrote about a 1,500-word piece and a few others. But, you know, a lot, four or 500 yeah, really quick reads. Steve Almonds is about getting a letter from John Updike when he was just a budding writer himself, you know, so back in the 90s sometime, and he gets this fan letter from John Updike, and he, of course, thinks it's, you know, a put-on by his friends and colleagues. Aha, very funny, and, you know, nice try. And then he's thinking, wait a minute, they would have had to driven up to Beverly, Massachusetts, or Beverly Farms, or whatever it is, to actually mail this thing. He didn't think any of them would go that far. And what I like about Steve's story is that you know, most of us may not get a letter from our, our literary hero, but everyone hears from a mentor, a little sign, some small um, note, as it were, that says, keep doing what you're doing. Go for it. So most of us won't uh, get a letter from uh, uh, John Updike or uh, like Aaron Huey, who was in Afghanistan when the bombs are coming down. He was a photographer for The New Yorker. That won't happen. But Aaron had a gut check. So when you, and, and that's what his moment was. So you read through the book and it's like you can relate to even the most wild stories in your own way. I know. I actually – well, I, I did look up a couple of people I know. And then I started picking them kind of randomly. So I picked up this one, Cheryl Della Dietra. She has just amazing little story about answering. She had some terrible job, and she answers an ad on, on a recommendation from a friend to be Hunter S. Thompson's assistant. It's a wild story. It's called <laughs> Gonzo Girl. And Cheryl was a grad in 1992, much like these days, a recession, wants to be a writer, wants to be in magazines. The phone rings at 3 a.m. And she happened to be up. She happened to be up. <laughs> and at 3 a.m., the phone rings. And if you pick it up and it's Hunter S. Thompson on the line, he, he means business. And her moment is that basically he said, I liked your letter. She faxed it. It was 92. Can you get out here tomorrow? Pause. Can you get out here tomorrow? And she knows in that moment, yes or no could change her life. And she said yes. Yeah. That was just – it was a great little story. And then and then I liked her last line, she says, and that was just the beginning of it. I mean I'd like to do a whole interview with her. What it was like being Hunter S. Thompson's uh, it's a, it's a It's a great story and I um, – you know, as her editor on, on the piece, she gave me a gift, which I have, which is I have Hunter S. Thompson's cigarette holder. You do? Almost makes me want to take up smoking. Well, I mean, obviously she was she was creative. She was a writer in her own right. But, I mean, that must have been a wild ride with him. And what's so interesting about her piece, which she writes, is that, you know, she's like, listen, I wasn't Tina Brown. I was 22 years old. I knew how to mix a drink. I was a little I was a little bold. And those life skills, were, it turns out what Hunter S. Thompson wanted. So it's not always what you expect to make you go forward in your career, magazines, radio, architecture, whatever it is. But, you know, Cheryl was herself, and she answered in the only way she knew how, which was yes. All right. So the other one I had to look up right away, because I know you're married to Piper Kerman, who wrote one of the books that I just loved and had her on both radio and TV, Orange is the New Black. She spent, I think it was 13 months. Well, a That's year. right, 13 months. Thir- there you go, I have a good memory. 13 months in a federal prison for an escapade that she got involved in during her college years that involved drug smuggling, drug running, that kind of stuff. Anyway, she spent a year in um, Danvers, and I thought, oh, I wonder if Piper has you know a moment in this book. And I assumed her moment would be you know the minute she got – when she got snagged for uh, – and found guilty or whatever it was, but no. She had a completely different one. Same with me, Emily. I thought she'd either write about the moment she was basically caught and knew her life was about to go downhill in a hurry or the moment she decided to basically go forward uh, with these people and, and, you know, eventually commit a crime. Yeah. And she said, no, nah, I wrote about that already. And she wrote about it very well. She did. But what she wrote about um, – and she wrote, in her book, uh, she had written about those incidents. But what she wrote about for the moment book was being 14 years old, being uh, on a cove in New Bedford, not far from Boston – 
and she's driving with her cool uncle, you know, and he says, you know what? Take the wheel. She's like, what? What? I'm 14. He said, take the wheel. You're old enough. They're on a country road. And in that moment, driving down the road, you know, she really grew up in a way. And she grew up in, you know, very interesting ways. And and did the road lead to, uh, you know, the drug crime and prison and then, you know, redemption? Who knows? But we all have these moments of like something changes in us. can be very subtle. can be very dramatic. Especially involving a car. I was just telling you before we end the year, I just picked up my restored my father's restored 1966 Sunbeam Tiger, which I'm going to dare to drive up to upstate New York this weekend. And I learned how to drive on that car. And I can remember a moment when I'm on a steep, steep hill in our house, near our house in Connecticut, and that thing's going about 60 miles down the hill because I couldn't figure out how to, you know, shift and move the thing up the hill. And I said, I just hope no one's coming up behind me. <laughs> and now here I am 40 years later with that car in my, <laughs> in but it, my driveway. And it gets to that universal thing, you know. Um, we get thousands of entries to the site uh, to be in the book, and then we, and we approach some of our favorite writers like Steve Allman and Dave yeah, Eggers yeah. and Jennifer yeah. Egan. And a lot were about running and uh, dealing with cancer and parents yeah, and yeah. things you learned. And it was really interesting. Piper's was the only, only one about, about driving. driving. And it, it was surprising to me because, God, I'm like, wow, a lot yeah. of people had moments when running, didn't they? But, I wouldn't uh, have thought about doing one about driving. And then it made me think of it because I had this coincidence with what I'm doing, dealing with this weekend with my dance. And club. everyone has a driving story. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody does. Here's somebody on the phone who's joining us who's actually written one of the pieces for uh, your book, uh, The Moment. It's Kimberly Rose. And you've kind of used her as one of the upfront ones because it's actually a very dramatic tale. And you know what? We're going to let her tell it. Welcome, Kimberly. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Good. So enjoyed your story among all the others in this book. Um, but as I said, we're going to let you tell it. All right. Well, I'm not going to give it all away. But, um, oh, no. Story, all right. <laughs> but the story is about um, sort of realizing that my marriage um, needed to come to an end and not wanting to face that, but looking at some photographs that were sort of this incontrovertible evidence that the marriage was over and it was time to time to wake up. And uh, it was a really tough moment, um, a series of moments, but a really tough moment. So, well, I guess uh, we can tell a little bit more. You, you, I can read a little bit if you want. Yeah, do that. Do that. Okay. So there were, I pick up these, this packet of photos from the CVS, and there's 60 photographs from my daughter's birthday party, but there's none of me. So I'm reading. I'm realizing that. I'm like, where am I? And your husband took the pictures. Yeah. So there was none of me except me. I was only a sliver of a shoulder, a hand on a child's arm, fingers cutting a cake, a nose kissing a frosting-covered cheek. Never all of me. Not one single picture of just me. Not even one of my daughter and me. I kept shuffling through the stack, not believing this was it. But it was. It was as if, to my husband, who took the photos, I didn't exist. He didn't want to see me in his album of life. He could not see me, and unfortunately, I felt like I was disappearing, ghosting away, until I was some sort of iconic mother-wife without a name. Yeah, it was great. It was really... When, when, when you thought about writing something, Kimberly, for, for the book, did that, did that moment jump out at you? Because, I mean, we all have so many things that kind of flash by us. Was that well, one yeah, just... it did, because um, at the end of the story... Um, you know, I, I end up getting my own photographs taken. Yeah. <laughs> and I had just gotten back those photographs. And so it was definitely the right story to write at that time. And it was the first story that I had sent out after my marriage. Uh, I hadn't written in over 20 years. And uh, I hadn't worked in 11 years. I'd been, well, I had worked. I'd been at home doing job of a mom. And um, so this is the first story I sent out after my marriage, after my divorce. And it got published. And it's been like a supersonic rocket ship ride ever since. Have you thought about doing a feature-length book on that? Yeah, I'm actually, I want to do a collection of women's stories about love in mid-40s and, and 50s because, um, you know, one of the things, divorcing in your mid-40s, single mom of three in the middle of the Great Recession, having worked mm. 11 years, you know, everyone was very, very gloomy and down that, there was, you know, I could just forget it. It was going to be on welfare or something, but um, it hasn't been that way at all, and I, I just... I think it'd be interesting to get some more stories that are a little more positive than um, what some people have you believe is going to happen to you when you're a certain age. Talking to the writer Kimberly Rose, and here in the studio is Larry Smith, uh, editor of Smith Magazine and author of The Moment. Well, Larry, how did 
you and Kimberly come to know each other? How did well, you, you know, find Kimberly this story? Kimberly is, I have to say, really like why I started Smith Magazine, a place for regular folks who, you know, have writing in them. They're not maybe written in The New Yorker, or written lots of books, but we're all writers, right? That's Smith's uh, tagline is everyone has a story. What's yours? And, you know, she heard about the moment prompt. It was going to be a new prompt and hopefully book and that kind of thing. And it all worked out. And she heard it. I don't know. Maybe she heard it on Facebook or on or on a radio show that we were doing this. And when I saw her piece come in, like I see thousands of pieces, the experience of reading that piece was not unlike the experience of the reader reading the book. You don't really know where it's going. I thought it was going to be a photo of uh, infidelity, you know, just mm. reading it. And then it's just this lovely piece. And um, it's, you know, it, we hear that it gets Kim writing again. And it reminds us all that we're all writers. We all have stories. And then... You know, the conversation continues. What's your moment about love, about driving? And really, like, Kim, you know, is just why we do what we do at Smith Magazine. And, Kim, how did you come to have the nerve to submit this? Well, what happened was um, I took an online writing class and learned about Smith Magazine and the six-word sto- six oh. memoirs. <laughs> and I was immediately addicted yeah. and um, sent in a story to Larry, six-word story. And he emailed me back, do you want to come to New York and read it? And I'm like, what? And I did. I went to the Highline Ballroom on a Tuesday night. Three to four hundred people came to hear poetry that night and uh, sold out. And uh, I was just in heaven, you know, and and I was one of 20 other six-word memoirists. So, yeah, I was a Smith Magazine (laughs) junkie, and I was online all the time. It's a fabulous community of writers there. It was like my new family, so to speak, and um, I heard about the moment that way. Got it. What was your six-word memoir? They fought. He bought. She forgot. Good one. <laughs> Larry has a T-shirt here that I love too. So much crying. The baby too. He has a sixteen. <laughs> he has a sixteen-month-old. So you, you can't get away from this six-word thing, can you? It, uh, you know the six-word thing. It really it, it it it's very addictive and fun. And and I wrote so much crying. The baby too. Um, uh, at when he, my son was three months, but now it's. Uh, Dads, they grow up so fast. Oh. I was sitting with him the other day, and I was like, I got this. Oh, you got it, Dad. I got this. All right. Well, <laughs> Kimberly Rose, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great story. We really enjoyed it. Thank Larry, you. I remember your other T-shirt, too. Our prison visits were surprisingly romantic. You have really good memory, Emily. Our prison visitations were visitations. surprisingly romantic, which I wrote when we came out with the book that I talked to you about, yeah. Six Word Memoirs on Love and Heartbreak, which is about Piper and visiting yeah. her in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other um, pieces I really enjoyed in this book, the moment was um, Melissa Etheridge and talking about her, you know, going through you know horrible cancer treatments for breast cancer, and then she gets this phone call that she's won a Grammy, and then she gets this second phone call saying, we want you to sing Janis Joplin's Heartbreak, is it? Peace of my heart. Peace of my heart. And she's thinking about how she can't do it because of the way she looks, the way she appears. And, you know, she's this cancer victim. And then she has this whole sort of denouement. I love that piece, too. And what's so interesting about Melissa Etheridge's story is that when we contacted her about, you know, would you like to write a moment? And we assumed it would be something about cancer and becoming a real advocate for it. And what she talked about was not so much having the cancer, but getting the call to be on the Grammys. And not so much as saying, yes, I'll do the Grammys, but deciding not to wear her wig. So in that moment, when she decided to appear on the Grammys and sing that wonderful song without a wig, she was making a decision. And to watch that video on YouTube, it's like you have your own moment watching it. So powerful and such an interesting piece of her story. It was, yeah. And I like that some of her most famous contributors, really, they tell us new information. Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, um, didn't write about Eat, Pray, Love or her marriage. She wrote about being a four- or five-year-old girl and hearing her parents speak. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Like I adults. That one. Yeah, for the Realized, first time. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and she realized that at that young age that actually they had lives separate from taking care of her and... Uh, it was, she said, an exhilarating and scary moment. And now extrapolate the Elizabeth Gilbert story, right? Like, wow, across the world. Yeah. And it's just, you know, everyone, Kim, Elizabeth Egger, uh, Dave Eggers, Elizabeth Gilbert, they just brought really their best stories to this book. And I am very grateful for the famous people, the first-time writers, just sharing stories and hopefully starting larger you know, discussions. There's just a basic, sounds so cliche, but there's just a basic, connectivity from these short kind of stories because everybody can nod and relate, you know, even if you haven't had cancer, you know, it's just the the personal moment that you can think that that either could be me or I've had something similar or 
it's just an oh wow you can it's just so you internalize it in such a human way and and that's why you know I, I edited the long magazine articles when I worked at Men's Journal and Fancy magazines before I jumped <laughs> off of that to start this and I feel like sometimes people say well everything's so short with you but where this short is the is the way in it's the starting point for larger discussions for people to start writing and and you know so and you can flip through the six word books very quickly of course yeah. you flip through the moment book and you just take the piece that matters to you and, and a piece you didn't think you're really going to finish you start reading and you finish maybe about a you know a story about a, a conversation a woman had with her dad about the toughest conversation they ever had and it was the best conversation and like maybe that's not your story but there's a conversation that changed your life. We've all had that. Do you have a moment? My moment, uh, which I talked about in the introduction, was really hard for me to write, and I was conflicted about writing it. But, of course, my wife said, you've asked all these people to tell the most personal story of their lives, and you've got to do it too, man. So I wrote about uh, being in high school, and I had an eating disorder. And in the moment, I'm on the scale with my parents' weekly weigh-in, and my mom is sort of crying in the corner, and my dad's just mad and angry about the whole thing, and I'm hiding little weights in my sweatpants. I mean, it was crazyville, and it just doesn't happen that much with guys, no. you know? And in that moment, you know, as I remember it, I just thought, I'm tired. My parents are tired. They're upset. I'm kind of bringing everybody down, and this is not going to end well for anybody, especially myself. And whether it was that moment or, you know, the help, I finally agreed to get help and to talk to someone because I was a stubborn teenager. I didn't want to talk to anyone about it. And, you know, it was a series of, of, you know, of a lot of time until I sort of recovered. But I just remember thinking, I'm so tired and this is so awful. So I wrote about that. (laughs) Honestly, I did not want to because I I really never talk about it. I hadn't talked about it in years. As you say, guys especially. It's embarrassing and it's painful and it's hard. uh, It's hard to talk about this stuff. But I wanted to bring forth a personal story and hopefully – you know, maybe a high school kid, boy, reads this and is like, you know, look, he, he, he got past it and he's okay or, or a girl. And, um, and it was important to, to give up a little something of myself as we're asking others to do and, and to share these stories with the world. Yeah, that's a powerful one. All right, Larry Smith, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, and that is it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. In the wake of the swearing ban in Middleborough, we talk swearing. That, who's doing it and why, and why does it feel so good, even though we know it's so bad? Stay with us now for the County Crossy Show. Coming up next, innovation is a word we hear a lot, but what does it actually take to make a product innovative? We'll find out. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, a local family ponders how the president's new immigration initiative affects them. And Roger Clemens is acquitted, but what about the court of public opinion? That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio, I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon. Summer night